We apologize for the air conditioning problem. It had been turned on, but it shut itself off. So as you can tell, it is it is working now, and uh, someone from maintenance is just coming up to make sure it stays on. So we're going to be speaking about the ten paramis, the ten perfections of the heart, and I'll begin by spending. A short time on the parami of generosity, and then Kanda will be speaking on the other paramis. Often uh, generosity is not spoken about until the very end of retreats, and uh, I like to change that. <laughs> actually, in the order of the teachings from the Buddha, generosity was the first teaching he offered to practitioners. And then he would teach the practice of sila, of living, practicing in harmony with our own hearts, with harmony with society. And then he would teach the practice of concentration and mindfulness. Uh, So we don't usually get that order of teachings here in the West. And the, the practice of generosity is so rich in my own practice that I, I really love talking about it. So deeply supports practice. And the practice of, of generosity brings joy. There's joy in, in giving, joy in reflection, reflecting afterwards on giving. Sense of contentment and ease that comes forth with generosity. Uh, supports clarity. Kind of a sense of when there's a sense of enoughness that I can share, I have enough to share, whatever the sharing might be. It might be time, it might be presence, it might be volunteering, could be money, but there's all kinds of ways that we can be uh, generous. So the, the three aspects of generosity that I want to emphasize that are really alive in my own practice are to pay attention to the impulse. I really have a deep intention to pay attention to the impulse to act with generosity and an underlying impulse to then act, to act on that impulse. So, um, for an exa- as an example, I, I live right in San Francisco, a half block from Market Street, so I see homeless people all the time. And I don't give money to homeless people generally. I don't think that's probably the best way to help them. I've been involved in organizations that do really help uh, homeless people in a very organized way. I have the intention to be present, to make eye contact with homeless people when they speak to me. But every once in a while I feel the impulse to share something. Sometimes it's clothing, Sometimes it's, it is money. And although I'm not sure it's really beneficial if that impulse arises when I see someone on a cold, wet night sleeping on the sidewalk in San Francisco, sometimes I am moved. I feel that impulse and I have the intention on following through and acting. Um, and the quality of generosity doesn't expect something in return. So I'm not necessarily looking for to be sure that the person's going to use that money wisely. 
but I'm acting on the purity of the impulse. The second part of the practice of generosity for me is to really open to the joy of giving, to the happiness that comes with giving, whatever form it might take. And I think within our own, within our culture, sometimes we diminish and don't take a step back to appreciate our acts of generosity that may be very simple, may be very big. And the third aspect is to honor the generosity of others, to really deeply honor the generosity of others and not to in any way to be mindful of not diminishing their generosity. And generosity can be defined as giving without expecting anything in return. That's another place to bring mindfulness practice to, is to see whether there's an expectation of something in return. In my own practice of generosity too, it helps to break through the sense of separateness, to the separate sense of I, my happiness being more important than others' happiness. The real joy that comes in recognizing the needs of others, recognizing the suffering of others, recognizing the compassion that can arise, a wish for it to end, and then the action that sometimes follows with an act of generosity. So generosity gladdens the heart. A beautiful quote from the Buddha. Generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. We experience joy in the actual act of giving something. And we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. I invite you to bring the mindfulness practice to that. To invite the presence to feel the joy in the forming of the intention, to feel the joy in the actual act of giving, and then to take time afterwards to experience the joy on the reflections. A quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, taking care of others, healing others, ultimately is the only way to discover your own joy and to have a happy life. So the happiness that he refers to as well that comes with giving. And so many ways that the generosity can come forth that the offering of time, of service, just being present to listen to a loved one, maybe a work colleague experiencing some kind of suffering. I know several people who are very generous in cooking meals, really cooking meals kind of offered from their heart the way the, the cooks do here at Spirit Rock. So many ways to offer generosity. Actually, studies have been shown that those who volunteer, act generously through volunteering, that the overall death rate is lower for those who volunteer and that they sleep better and have lower blood pressure rates. So even from kind of a selfish viewpoint, there's a benefit. <laughs> and I certainly experience, have experienced that in my many years as a, as a hospice volunteer and the, 
the peace and happiness that comes with volunteering. So I, when I worked at the airport, I would have the opportunity sometimes to practice generosity with renunciants. I would see monks and nuns coming through the airport. Monks and nuns generally aren't supposed to handle money, but they're usually given some money um, to allow them to uh, have food when they travel, because especially in the U.S., people may not know that um, monks and nuns have renounced uh, carrying money. So I would make a point of offering renunciants uh, a meal, offering to buy a meal, and of course just the joy of making the connection with renunciants. And I remember some years ago I um, saw someone who was clearly a renunciant, I think a Tibetan, he looked like a Tibetan practitioner, I confirmed that later. Uh, and he looked a little lost and um, I asked him if I could help him and he was walking about three quarters of a mile from the domestic terminal to the international terminal. He gave me his boarding pass. It was interesting, he gave me his boarding pass and I carried it with me the whole way to that other gate. He never asked for it right back. So a different, different perspective. And uh, he didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Tibetan, but we were using his uh, translation on his iPhone that he was carrying to try and communicate. We really made a sweet connection and uh, he uh, allowed me to um, offer him a meal. I, I purchased a meal for him. At the end, he, he gave me his card and he invited me to the monastery that he headed in Tibet, the Rinpoche, and also headed a library and a hospital. So, um, an important figure in that practice. So in that case, I did get something back. I got that nice human connection and it was very sweet. A few weeks later, I saw um, another monk and he was right up at, by the castro, just ready to buy his meal. And I stepped in and bowed and paid for his meal. He never looked at me. <laughs> the desire, the, the force of greed was arising. I wanted to get that little pump of a reward for some kind of connection. But generosity doesn't expect anything in return. And he was honoring my generosity by not acknowledging it and honoring my practice. And it deepened my practice to see and experience that and see what the mind did. So something you can bring into your own practice of generosity. Catch that moment. Is, is, there, is there an expectation of something in return? So sometimes too, I, I, I do have that intention of, of acting on the impulse. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes there's an impulse to give and it's so clear. Sometimes there's a bigger offering. Um, I'll let it sit. I'll let it sit for a few months, reflect on it. Sometimes the, the way in which the offering is made as an act of gratitude and letting it really rest with the joy that comes with that intention, the joy of um, kind of having it offered in a way that is most meaningful, that allows uh, complete presence with that offering and then really being mindful with having that time and space 
to appreciate the joy afterwards. So honoring the generosity of others. Um, One simple thing is when my practice is when someone offers to buy me a meal, I say, thank you. That's very generous. My my modus of operandi before used to be, no, no, let's split the bill, I'll pay. But it honors their generosity just to say, thank you. That's very generous. So I might remember next time I'll make sure to pay the bill, but still it honors the generosity. About a year ago, I was at a friend's, um, new friend's, first time we'd had dinner with with him and his partner. And um, he and his partner were just back from Asia and they traveled through the Tokyo airport and brought back uh, two boxes of Royce chocolates. And I'd never had these chocolates before. And uh, he opened one box to, to serve, maybe eight of us at the dinner. And they were pretty amazing chocolates. And I was raving about these chocolates. And he said, well, I brought a second box. Here, take it home with you. <laughs> well, the practice is to honor that generosity. <laughs> and I took it home with me. And made such a wonderful connection with him. As I, I was really moved by that. It was such an immediate response of his generosity in offering that. Not a moment of, of thinking about it. And I, I wrote him a very nice email in the next day to thank him. And he replied with a very thoughtful email. And uh, we really built a great friendship with that act of generosity and my honoring of that generosity was like a springboard for that friendship. A quote from Mother Teresa, it's not about how much we do, it's about the love we put into the doing. And it's not about how much we give, but about how much love we put into the giving. So I watch for too in my practice where there's kind of the turning away. Sometimes there's kind of a no too much or not now. So two little vignettes. One is I was on a retreat at IMS, very mindful to practice generosity, so picking up trash along the road when I'd see it. One day I saw a candy wrapper. I saw it and I walked right by. Stopped. What's going on? Tracing it back out was unpleasant. Didn't want to have to put my hand to the ground and pick up this candy wrapper and have to wash my hands when I got back. That's simple. <laughs> That's simple. In that case, I could go back and pick up the piece of can pick up the candy wrapper. Um, another kind of a moving uh, story of generosity is my my partner's parents. Um, uh, very humble and and very generous. They are immigrants uh, from Mexico and um, don't speak a word of English. So they don't have a lot of money to offer, but every week um, my partner's mother serves meals to the homeless. I think, I think it's almost entirely people who are Spanish speaking in, in her community. And uh, she started doing this just six or eight people, and it's grown to where I think it's now 20 or 30 people. Um, I think twice a week and has a whole team of 
other volunteers who help out. And so as this was starting to grow, my partner said that um, his mother wanted help to build a, a big arbor, a concrete pad and a wooden arbor that would provide shade for people when they were eating the midday, this midday meal. And my first response, unfortunately, was like to calculate what's this gonna cost? How could this money be better used? And then I was able to catch it, say no. How could I possibly not support the generosity of his parents in, in this great undertaking? So you could think about it, if, if just one out of a hundred people start doing something like that, homeless problem would begin to uh, maybe not resolve itself, but uh, be a lot more tolerable if people were all supporting the homeless in that way. So just the um, summary on generosity to pay attention to that impulse and maybe set a deep intention for acting on the impulse, to appreciate the joy in giving, and then to honor uh, the generosity of others, a real rich practice to bring into daily life. Thank you. Kind of. Thank you, John. I love um, I love that generosity. It's um, as you said, the it was the Buddha's first teaching was on generosity, and that you know I'm sure was not happenstance or there's a reason for that. And I think of it. Um, when you talked about paying attention to the impulse, to the first impulse, when I think of that, I think about all of the paramis as really paying attention to that first impulse. Because I believe, I'm going to talk more about the, the paramis, which are the, the ten perfections of the heart. That, that was the first one, it's generosity. You all have a yellow sheet of paper with them. Um, we can follow the conversation here. Because I believe that um, these are the innate qualities of the heart. And anything that is innate, that's the first impulse that we then somehow have learned to squash. You know, over time, over life, over circumstance, whatever it might be, um, learned behavior. Um, but I think that our first impulse is to be generous. And a lot of these paramis are our first impulse. And so um, there's this wonderful innate generosity, this, this innateness that, that we all have. Um, just like when you were talking earlier, John mentioned the woman in the hospice who he was holding her hand and then something broke and she pointed. She's like, go help that person. That was just this impulse of generosity. Go help that person. Even someone who needed help themselves, they wanted to 
to give to someone else. That's who we really are. I'm convinced of that. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit later too. I mean, science has also shown us now that it's not only what we think is true, but it is. It has scientifically been proven. Um, There's a organization at UC Berkeley called the Greater Good Science Center, and I've been working with them um, with some of the work that I do, and they did this research on what makes people well. All people, they took a cross-section, doesn't matter where you live, who you are, what gender, what race, what age, what makes people well. And they came up with this huge study, and it was four things that make people well. And this guy named um, Docker, I don't know if anybody knows Docker, Colton Docker, is just a brilliant guy at UC Berkeley. Brilliant inside and out. And the four things that make people well are connection to self, when they really are on purpose, when they see and feel their purpose, that connection to self. Connection to others, when we're connected to someone else, which we know, right, and just how babies come into the world, being connected to other people. When we've been generous is the fourth one. Again, going back to the first, to what we were just talking about, generosity. When we've been generous, how that makes people well. And the fourth one is that thing when we feel the feeling of awe, like something bigger than ourselves, you know, whether it, it be whatever your belief is on, on, on how the world was created or whether it's a tree or whether it's that bird outside or a flower, but something that creates awe inside oneself that is typically outside of oneself and in nature. Those are the four things that make people well that have been scientifically proven. And what makes people well, again, is the same thing about where their heart goes, what opens up their heart. And so the paramis, why I love the paramis is because it's a list, another one of those lists, the Buddhist list, that um, really shows us the qualities of, it's the bodhisattva qualities that, would, that we would have to perfect in order to actually be fully self-awakened Buddha. All right, so I don't know if in this lifetime any of us will be fully self-awakened Buddha, but it's possible, right? I mean, we're here in this room for some reason, and maybe it could be our North Star. My understanding, too, is that the Buddha spoke about these qualities during the time of when he was teaching some 40-some years, um, but that this list wasn't actually written. My understanding that it wasn't written until after he died and, you know, put together as a list. And I want to just point out that there is a, a book that has been written on the paramis that is probably the most noted book in our tradition. And it happens to be written by Sylvia Borstein. And I don't know if she would bring it up, but I'm bringing it up. And it's called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And I hope that they will be available at the end of this retreat. I highly recommend it. And when, John, you were saying when you were looking for quotes, well, I'm in the same situation. (laughs) I look for quotes, and this is the person that I quote the most when it comes to the paramis is Sylvia, who has really 
brought it together in such a beautiful way with just narratives as she does and stories and it's just so well done and so I'm going to take some from this about as I talk about the paramis kind of condense it to some degree the ten perfections so the perfection the word perfection first of all kind of goes like eh, right I mean who's perfect nobody's perfect and again it's something to it's just something to lean towards right something to lean towards um, it's another aspect of what I was talking about yesterday, wise action. So wise action is making wise choices, making choices that cause less harm and that cause less suffering and that actually create happiness. And so these perfections are a part of that. And, and, and I want to talk a little bit before I get into it is why it's useful. For me, I'm, I, I live in... Oakland, and I have a business there, and I work with a lot of people helping entrepreneurs who are really changing the world and looking straight on at the problems. And so I'm ensconced in the issues of the planet, and I think we all are. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And I work in it with the economy and the problems that are with this economic system and how it works. Our society is not living its best self, in my opinion. It's not, we're, it's not living its best self. And we can. And it's possible. It's possible. We've, what we've been taught to value is... Um, what I think is kind of at the heart of the problem. One is that there's this deep separation that we have between ourselves and each other and the planet. We feel so separate and we act it out. You know, what we value is financial accumulation at any cost, at any expense. That's, we value that. We value this hyper-individualism, this me versus we kind of mentality that it's about myself and not us competition to the top, getting to the top by any means, this hierarchy, whether it's gender hierarchy, racial hierarchy, country, gender identity, all these different hierarchies, somebody's higher than the other. And all of these things are part of the world that we know we live in. And so why these paramis are so important because they're useful because I think of them as the antidote. Because it's self-cultivation, it's our heart, is where it all change happens. This is where it begins, is within our hearts, developing our own hearts to who we really are. And then creating the society that we want to create from our heart. And so the paramis, it goes deeper, deeper, deeper down into each individual person. And that's why I think they're really important, because we can make a difference. Each and every one of us can make a huge difference on the planet by cultivating our own heart. And so, again, that's what a lot of this training is that we're here to do, is training the mind-heart. We're just presenting a plate of goodies of what's possible. And that's why I love the Paramis, and that's why I love Sylvia's book and, and the way 
it's been written. So I'm going to um, make a list of, we'll read down the list of what the paramis are. And starting with number one was generosity, which John so beautifully talked about. The second one is morality or virtue. Um, Now we have a new word, harmony, could be replaced. The third one is renunciation, which John also talked about yesterday. Wisdom is number four, which we've all been, the whole, all of it boils down to wisdom, wise wisdom and wise choices, wise understanding, wise intention. That's all a part of wisdom. Energy, energy, which is a new one, kind of like effort, but differently than that. Patience, beautiful one, patience. Oh my goodness. I need more of it. (laughs) Truthfulness. And the last, oh, I'm sorry, eight is determination. Loving kindness, which we've been talking about, metta. And the last one is equanimity, which it all funnels down to equanimity. I think the whole of the practice is, is that. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit and take a look at these paramis. And, and so, um, since John already spoke about generosity, we're going to start with morality. And I'm going to read something from the book that starts the chapter on morality. It's a little story. So the, the, um, there's these tales that, were t- that are made of the Buddha as animal and all kinds of fairy tales almost like, and, and the paramis are um, exemplified in these tales. And this is one. A compassionate great ape, a prior incarnation of the Buddha, rescued a man who had fallen into a deep pit in the forest carrying him to the top on his back. Exhausted, the ape said, I need to sleep so I'll have the strength to help you find the way out of the forest. You watch over me. As he slept, the man, overcome by hunger, thought, I need to kill this ape and eat him. He picked up a huge boulder and threw it, and with all his might on the sleeping ape. The ape awoke, startled, his eyes filled with tears. You poor man, he said. Now you will never be happy. Sad tell (laughs) of morality, right? Right action. This is an example of, of the lack of what this, this part of the heart that we want to develop, that story, points out. And so the Eightfold Path that we've been talking about is all interconnected as well with the, with the, um, the paramis. And what Sylvia has done so well is on your sheet, you'll see, and, and you don't have to read it, because I'll talk about just read it later, that um, she actually connects the different parts of 
the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path with different paramis, beautifully done. So the morality aspect of the Eightfold Path is what we're talking about here. And it's something that I talked about when I was talking about wise action is under that, pre- under that uh, aspect. And then there's also the five presets of non- non-killing, non-stealing, harmful language, um, sexual misconduct, intoxicants. All of that is also a part of the morality, a virtue of harmony. And what this speaks to for me is I'm, I am personally confused by the values that we hold in this country right now and of the world, not just this country, but I'm confused by the values. And there was a, it feels like I don't know where they are necessarily. And so this morality aspect, I really feel is an important one, particularly now as things are the way they are, that we really learn to develop that part of our heart so that we can act from a place of, of, of kindness, a place that makes us feel good, that doesn't create harm and actually heals and, and creates happiness. The second one is, um, which is the, actually the third one, is renunciation. And John again spoke about that yesterday, so I won't um, talk about it very much. Except for the word, renunciation, sometimes that word is really hard for us to hear because um, it sounds like, like you're losing something or like you're being deprived, renunciate. When you renunciate, it feels like deprived, being deprived of something, when actually it's gaining. Because what we're talking about in this particular parami is that insatiable desire to want more, to want more, that desire that leads to suffering. And if we can renounce that desire, we actually gain happiness. So looking, if we can actually kind of change the way we think about renouncing to what we're actually gaining, that's where the juice is, that's where the beauty is. There's so much to gain when we renounce that kind of insatiable appetite for everything. Because desire, we talked about desire, desire is not inherently the problem. We live a life of desire. We desire, like Sylvia said, we want to eat, we want to sleep. But being driven by them, being driven by those desires can become problematic. And it's also awesome if you notice, have you ever had a desire and you just chose not to live it out and you just wait for it to pass because it's going to pass, right? Everything rises and passes away. Nothing's going to stay. You're not going to have that desire forever. And have you ever had the opportunity to just play with it and allow it to pass away? And how good that feels. It feels like an achievement of some sort. It feels like, huh, I can move beyond that desire. It's renouncing the greed, hatred, and delusion that we've been talking about, that Buddhism talks about. Can we renounce all of that and gain ourselves? And gain our true, loving hearts? 
That's what we gain. The fourth aspect is wisdom. And I'm going to read something here on wisdom in the Bible. (laughs) She starts every chapter with a verse, and this is what I'm reading, this one here. This is from the Buddha. There are, O monks, these four splendors. What for? The splendor of the moon, the splendor of the sun, the splendor of fire, and the splendor of wisdom. Of these four splendors, this is the best, the splendor of wisdom. Earlier today, I remember, um, I think it was Sylvia, you said something about um, that this entire practice is cultivating cultivating heart of, a heart of compassion based on mindful wisdom. So cultivating the heart based on wisdom. And that mind of wisdom is this discerning mind. It's a mind that can discern what is suffering and what isn't. Again, remember those neon lights, that sign that says suffering over here, non-suffering over there? Well, without those, we're left to our own devices to discern. And so that's where wisdom is, that wisdom to discern through, through practice, through practice, through mindfulness, through watching our minds, watching life as it is. And really being able, and that's how the discerning takes place. It's like sharpening that knife of discernment. Cutting through delusion. Cutting through hatred and ill will. Discerning what's helpful, what's harmful, what brings happiness. And so wisdom, which is again connected to wise understanding in the Eightfold Path, wise understanding that peace is possible as Sylvia says peace is possible the fifth one is energy so energy is like what I have here is when we take a holiday from suffering we gain energy right Like when the stress is off, when that part of our life that's really hard is, if we navigate through it, we receive energy. When we help others, what do we get? We gain energy. When we are generous, that feeling, we gain energy. I... um, I did, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the AIDS ride, the ride from San Francisco to LA. Years ago, I did the AIDS ride twice, two years in a row. Mind you, I was not on the bicycle. I was volunteering to help the hundreds and hundreds that it takes to make it happen. I was in bike parking and creating bike racks everywhere we go, packing them up in a, to, in a big old van, a big truck, and then going to the next place, setting them out, heavy lifting my little body, and I worked so hard. 
it was the hardest thing I've done physically. I mean, I was exhausted. And yet, then the bicyclers would come in, you know, and we'd be waiting, and here they come to the next city. And the energy that I received from that, it was like I never was tired. It was the energy of giving, of my interdependence with all these bicyclers coming in. I'd be sobbing as they came in. That's the energy of giving, of feeling our interconnectedness. When we feel interconnected, we gain energy. That's what that was. I, I now can decipher it now that I have this frame. But that's what it was. This energy. Insight into our interdependence does that. The sixth one is patience. As I said, I can use a little bit of that. So patience begins by actually understanding impermanence. (laughs) Right? Because if you understand that something is going to pass, it's not going to last forever, you can start to develop patience. The things that are challenging is what we typically don't have patience for. We have a lot of patience for those things that we desire and that we want. We want them to stay forever. But the patience for those things that we want to push away. This too shall pass, my mother used to say all the time. Those were her words. This too shall pass. I didn't know she was a little Buddha. Because nothing lasts forever. If it rises, it passes away. And if we can develop the quality of patience. My goodness, what a different world it is. That impatience, that quality inside our bodies and how it feels in the body. You know it's not right, just how it feels in the body. And then when this, that peace, that ease, when we talk about ease, we're talking about that, that feeling of patience. And knowing that Things are what they are for right now. That's what it is, right? They couldn't be otherwise or they would be. Another truism of Sylvia that she's taught me is when people ask you, how are you? The answer is, couldn't be better. Right? Because if you could, you would. You actually couldn't be better than you are in that moment. (laughs) That's accepting what is. I want to say also that we have a colleague, friend, and teacher, Larry Yang, who um, I adore, and I think all of us do. And he's created this fifth noble truth, okay? And it is forgiving the first noble truth. The fact that life is tough. Can we hold that and forgive that? And that, I think, takes patience and wisdom. Can we forgive the first noble truth that life is just tough for everyone? It happens to all of us. The seventh one is truthfulness. And I'm going to read something from that one as well. Truthfulness. This is how that chapter starts. A wise person, upon acknowledging the truth, becomes like a lake, 
clear and deep and still. Find friends who love the truth. The Buddha. Truthfulness. So discovering what is true is what this is about. Discovering what is true. Wisdom. It all connected. Even though these are separate entities, they are, again, all connected. Through wisdom, we find the truth. We can discover the truth through clear seeing. How do we discover it? Through clear seeing, through an unbiased, un- non-judgmental mind. Through a non-judgmental mind, an unbiased mind, we can find the truth. You know, it was interesting to hear Sylvia's story earlier today about her friend of 10 years and they're separating based on something that was said. And then for you to come to that realization that what he said was true. I'm so impressed with that. (laughs) It's so much easier not to. It's so much easier to just be self defiant and self-righteous. But is that the truth? How hard is it for us to see our own truth? It takes wisdom, a lot of practice, a lot of practice to open up our hearts, to dissolve the ego for this moment, and to step into truthfulness. The Buddha talked about seeing with bare attention. Bare attention. I think that is what truthfulness is. The eighth one is determination. That's, so I think of determination as persevering. Practice, practice, practice. When you are determined to practice, That, to me, is the best determination ever. This, all of these things that we've been talking about, we're all capable of. These are not out-of-the-sky wisdoms, jewels of wisdoms. These are practical, available, available characteristics. And they just don't happen overnight at all. It takes practice, and it takes a determination, a self-determination to hang in there. I have met people who said, you know, I tried meditation. It didn't work for me. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it didn't work for me. I don't know where the determination is there because it, it doesn't work for you. I don't know what the definition of meditation or mindfulness is in that person, but... Determination is what it takes because we can guarantee you, and not just us here, but all of you out there too who have this practice and who know, it works. It works. And at least check it out and have enough determination to just go the next step.
And again, it's about beginning again. Begin again. Come back to the breath. Begin again. This is a practice of beginning again and beginning again and beginning again. The Buddha's words in his dying breath when he was leaving his body, he said something like, I was only able to point the way for you. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. That determination. And the ninth one is loving kindness, which we've talked a lot about. Again, if one can begin with self. The Buddha said, there is no other person in the entire world more worthy of well-wishing than for yourself. There's no other person in the whole wide world more worthy than you are. We know the benefits of loving-kindness. This world that we live in. What would it be like if that were the default? Another new operating system. Loving-kindness. From the Metta Sutta, my favorite part, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. I love that piece. So with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings. All living beings, excluding none. Excluding none. Loving kindness is not about, again, having to like someone and their behaviors. I have a list, quite frankly. And They are here on this planet as beings who have gone through whatever their life has brought. And my heart is open to all beings. Excluding none. Why not? And the last of the ten is equanimity. I love equanimity. I I think that the entire dharma kind of funnels down all the things we talk funnels into equanimity. You know, being able to hold it all. Equanimity just holds it all. It reminds me of the saying by Dr. King, it all boils down to this, that life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one's destiny affects all. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. 
All of the paramis boil down to this. Equanimity. A mental calmness, a composure, this evenness of temper, this ability to, especially in difficult situations, it's easy when it's easy, isn't it? This balanced, non-reactive mind. Because of the wisdom and the work and the mindfulness and all of it, all of it adds up and can we create a non-reactive mind, a mind that is choosing instead of reacting, choosing wisdom instead of harm, accepting life as it is, unshakable balance, rooted in insight. Because there's, it boils down to this, there's two things. There's what's happening, and how we relate to what's happening. What's happening, you may not be able to affect. We try, and I live my life actually out there, doing the good life, doing the good work, making change as much as possible. And at the same time, holding that paradox of accepting and changing and letting go having that balance, creating less suffering for myself, that it has to be some way, and yet working for change. It's a paradox. Equanimity I see as this beautiful, beautiful paradox if we could wrap our heads around it and it's not black or white. It is all of it. It's the goal of the whole practice. From, that's how I see it. Sylvia mentioned Gill and what he said, that he, he explained equanimity as, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I want to end with a quote by someone that I love dearly, friend and a poet and writer who lives here in the Bay, area. Her name is Alice Walker. This was on her blog recently. And life inexhaustible goes on. And we do too. Carrying our wounds and our medicines as we go. Ours is an amazing and spectacular journey. It is so remarkable. One can only be thankful for it, bizarre as that may sound. Perhaps our planet is learning to appreciate the extraordinary wonder of life that surrounds even our suffering. And to say yes, if through the thickest of tears. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for your attention. I think we need to stretch. So if you would come to standing and let your body tell you what it like to, what it would like to do as a stretch.
and then just just listen to it and uh, dare to follow what the inner world is telling you. So if it's folding forward or stretching your arms up or bending backward or sideways or even twisting, follow the, the deepest knowing of the wisdom that lives within. Hmm. And then find the, the breath that matches the possibility of being this generous with yourself and making wise action, really seeking the, the wisdom inside of yourself. And then clasp your hands together and raise them way up over your head. As you exhale, relax the shoulders down, press the, le- the right hip out, and lean to the left. Mm. And then inhale back up, and as you exhale, go the other way. And do that a few times, inhaling up and exhaling over. <sighs> Thinking of all these qualities of the heart, the paramitas or the paramis, probably there's one special one that's just for you, Like Kanda, I think mine is patience. And patience can really show up in stretching and moving the body. So can you wait for the body's cues to tell you when and how to move? Inhale up and exhale the arms out to the sides and bring them down and bring the hands in prayer position in front of the heart. So in gratitude for the sun today and the warmth, we'll do some sun breath. So you inhale, you spread your arms, you bring the hands about shoulder distance apart, slide the sacrum down, and bend the body open. And then as you exhale, you sweep all the energy that's available. Bring the hands together and bring it back to your own heart. So with determination, inhaling, And raising the arms, slide the sacrum, raise the heart. Thank you, son. Exhale. Move the arms out by the sides. Gather it all back. Bring it to your own heart. Wise action. Inhale and open. Gratitude is wise action. Exhale and release. Hmm. And let's do that one more time. Inhale and open it up. Really spread the heart open. Breathe right in there. And then, with that heartfelt love for yourself, bring the hands around and back here, home. Home. (coughs) And then release. Bring your hands to your hips. Bend your knees. Soften. And let your body come down over your legs. As you inhale, press into the shins. Gently raise the body halfway up. As you exhale, release the body down again. Bring your hands behind. Draw the body close to itself. Inhale, spread the arms out to the sides. Bend the knees, strong core. Bring the abdominals in. Come on all the way up to... Feel the sun. (coughs) Exhale, sweep the arms around 
and bring them back to your heart. This is the half sun salute. Arda Soyar Namaskar. One more time. Inhale and open it up. Exhale, big smile. Breath out. Come on down. Hmm. Inhale, hands to the shins, halfway up, grow it long. Exhale, release the body down, wrap the hands around you, give yourself a good big body hug. Mm. And then finally, soft knees, inhale, arms out to the side, spread your wings, lift the heart, and finally exhale, hands together, bring it all back home, mm. home where the heart is, and feel. Mm. Mm. And then release and find your way back to sitting. Anybody feeling heat? (laughs) That's the glory of the sun, is it not? So first of all, I'm feeling very happy uh, at this point in our, where we've come and because I think we're just where we need to be. We can't be anyplace else. I'm very grateful to Kanda for doing such a, being so um, gracious about my book. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't, you know, (laughs) I feel well, look at that. Actually, uh, I am very grateful. It's lovely to hear it. And the truth is, I, you know, of the books I've written, it's my favorite one. Yeah. I love that. I love all those stories. Um, one of the things that people have done research about now 
is that hearing stories about other people's acts of kindness makes everybody else feel happy. That they somehow, uh, I think, this is my guess on this, that somehow they, they're a balm, a, a soother on the heart uh, that's in the middle of hearing how really terrible some of the things that people are doing to each other and to the planet and right now and you could accidentally get them this feeling that uh, where is that business about people are fundamentally kind? I don't see that. I watch the news. You know. Not so much news about people's fundamental kindness. But the thing is that there is a lot of fundamental kindness and uh, when we hear about it, we feel better. The research that people have done included things like um, before a group is about to sit and meditate, whoever is leading the sitting would give people this exercise. Before we sit now, could you think of some time in the last 24 hours where you did a kindness for someone or they did a kindness for you? Sometime in the last 24 hours, somebody let you go in front of them on a line or somebody held a door for you somewhere or somebody picked up something that you dropped in the street and said, oh, you just dropped this book or you did that for somebody or you passed by someone and maybe gave them someone something on the street, a homeless person or maybe you talked to a person for a minute on the street. When you did something that was an act of kindness or somebody else did an act of kindness to you. And then they say, now roll that experience around in your mind, remember it, see how it feels, uh, remember all the bits of it, where were you and who did what to whom, and then we'll meditate. That's the end of that, and then we'll meditate. This group A does that, and group B doesn't have those instructions, just says, ready, set, go, we're meditating. And then at the end of the time, there's some way that who's ever doing this experiment um, measures as much as you can a thing that's a felt sense because you can't really uh, measure that was a good meditation, not a good meditation. Because they're all good meditations because they're all acts of intention to clarify the mind and grow it in wisdom. So they're all good. But people really respond by saying that was much easier to sit for that 30 minutes. That went much faster. I felt much happier. I felt buoyed up in my spirit if they had done that remembering of a kindness before. I think it really keeps us warm. That, that does something for our hearts, that we hear that somebody else did a kindness for somebody else. I think that's why people like Mother Teresa or people who do acts of heroism like Dr. King, people who do uh, uh, acts of selfless, uh, kindness, like the Dalai Lama, who's fond of saying, my religion is kindness. It's good for you to remember and feel and experience and plan to do kind things. They pick up the spirit. And Kanda said a very important thing about Larry's fifth noble truth about forgive the world for being what it is. And pointing out that what went along with that is it's the world that is, it couldn't be better 
because, I mean, we wish it were better. Sometimes when I say that to people, they say, what, what, what? Couldn't be better. It could be a whole lot better. We could stop killing each other. We could take care of the earth. We could everybody invite a stranger in. We could all really do something for other people. Could It could be better, and it would be better if everybody collectively got the message. I felt very good years ago when uh, it didn't work out as well as we thought, but during the time of the um, Arab Spring, where we had pictures of, of a, a city square with thousands of people in it with no violence and people behaving really well and insisting that the government change. That, that kind of quiet but firm determination that things happen another way. I thought, this is it. And one of the ways that I was most impressed uh, with is looking at this huge amount of people where there is no violence and they are acting effectively and everybody's on a cell phone. And no matter how much people say we're getting addicted to the cell phones and they're a problem and all of that, I think to myself, whatever we're getting, we also have gotten the possibility of talking to the whole world at one time. Facebook, I, I think things like Facebook or Google or somebody could together have a program with His Holiness and um, who else would we put on there? His Holiness and the Pope and Desmond Tutu, Pope Francis, Desmond Tutu. Uh, who else should we invite to be on that panel? Huh? Mr. Obama. <laughs> but they, that they'd all be there and all together they'd say, listen, we've studied about this our whole life. This is what we know. Everybody who's listening, take my word for it. Put down the guns. Stop killing each other. You have no enemies other than hatred in your own mind. That's actually what's really befouling this whole thing and fueling the unhappiness in the world. When I first began to practice metta, what I learned were formal incantations, which we now say, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, or some other variations of that. What I learned in the four formal ways in which in Pali it's stated is, may I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. So it sounds very clunky. And who knows what mental happiness, physical happiness, ease of well-being. I said it anyway because my teacher said these are the phrases, say them, so I did. And I said them millions of times over time because I was really serious about it. And uh, I felt, by the way, we'll talk about this maybe in the questions tonight. As soon as I started with that really serious saying, it was a really a pivotal change point. In, it was 10 years after I started to practice, but it was a really important change time for me. All those people would say, this is it, let's stop. And everybody would stop and it'd be a different world. It could happen. Enough people like yourselves could begin to spread that message. No more enmity. When I heard that phrase, may I be free of enmity and danger, I thought um, it meant may I be free of the danger of having people coming after me with enmity. 
I said, somebody can come, that I would, may I be free of other people's enmity, which would be a danger to me. Actually, it's my own enmity that's the danger to me. My own enmity. It took me a little bit of time to figure out that what I was talking about was my own enmity, because as soon as I have a grudge on somebody, I've polluted my otherwise potentially peaceful, relaxed, loving mind. And my friend Sheila was right. She said, you have one person standing between you and a loving heart for the whole world. Do you think he could get over it? Really. I was teaching a long time ago somewhere, and uh, there was a person named Tom in the class. And uh, Tom, and I was teaching a way about that the person who, uh, that keeping enmity in your heart, not forgiving people for whatever it is, large or small, takes a toll on your own mind that it uses up a certain amount of real estate of the heart that you're giving away, you're mortgaging a piece of your own potential real estate of the heart. And I gave as impassioned a teaching as I knew how to do. And at the end of what I hoped was that impassioned uh, teaching, I think that, that I, had a, I had a cartoon with me of a person locked up a person in an old-time uh, jail, like you used to see in old-time Western movies, which are now inappropriate and fortunately recognized as inappropriate. But somebody in an old-time jail in a Western city with bars, and this person is locked in the, in the jail. And the joke in the cartoon is there's a big key in the lock on the other side and there's no one there. A person's alone in the jail. You could reach around and turn the key, and he's shaking the bars. You could reach around and get the key and open the door and go out, and the joke is that it's not a joke. The sad truth is that we don't see that there's a key, and we can let ourselves out. The mothers who go to visit incarcerated people who murdered their child, we can't even imagine how a person can do that. Other people who know that the key is in our own hearts. After I taught that class, as impassioned as I thought I was, Tom came up to me and he seemed, you know, like I had taught old hat. Who doesn't know that? And he said to me, well, you know, Sylvia, you know, Sylvia, that the price, that forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. And I said, wow, Tom, that's a great thing. That's a great line. I'm going to teach that. And he said, well, you can if you want to, but you have to, every time that you tell that story, you have to say, Tom said it. (laughs) So I have told that story a zillion times. And every time I've told it, I said, Tom said it. Wherever Tom is, thank you, Tom. But forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. You have to give up the story, which is the only thing that's really fueling the, the enmity that is enduring in the heart. What keeps a grudge alive is keeping telling yourself the story. I told the story this morning of my uh, 10 years. I said, how could he have said that to me? That all the while, because beyond, behind that story, I can't believe that he said that to me, me. Behind that story is the real truth, which is, it's true, and I just don't want to look at it. And forgiveness 
comes when I have to give up the story that it's not true. It is true. Somebody, I, I've told that story, by the way, lots of times about my friend and I. And uh, people sometimes ask, they say, you know, you, you said in your, when you told the story that the both of you were in the same line of work. Uh, how come it took you 10 years to get around to doing it? So sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it just takes a long time. I don't think that there's a that there's a, a, a shelf life necessarily on a grudge. You don't know what it's protecting you from knowing. But what if we decided, I sometimes say to people, what if I had a pitcher of water and I, had, I told you that I have dissolved a magic herb in it and if you drink some of this water, it's invisible so you don't know that I did the magic herb, but the magic herb dissolves every grudge you ever had. You forget them. How, who would like to line up and have a drink of this magic herb? Who here would like to have a drink of that magic herb? Sometimes, not everybody put up their hands. I say, I see not everybody put up their hands. People say, who would I be if I gave up my stories? I think you'd be a really fully loving person and it would be a pleasure. But uh, we, have to, we have to remember the stories because then you have to know who it's good to be around and who it's safe and who it's not wise to be around. We, we, can, we, can, um, we can not forget, but we can actually forgive. And the forgiving, there's been books written on how to forgive. And there are actually rituals for forgiving. Or expressing one's wish that one be forgiven or forgiving formally the other person. In my own experience, what has worked for me is uh, before I'm ready to do it, it can't happen. Really, I can go through the ritual, but it hasn't been so helpful. When, the, when enmity falls away and forgiveness is natural, it's when I realize that Whatever offended me, whoever offended me, whoever I, whatever I did to offend somebody else, we could none of us in that moment have been otherwise. I couldn't be better. They couldn't be better. We are always, all of us, just who we are, the collection of all our karma from this lifetime and other lifetimes. I'm upset with somebody. I have to think, well, how did they get to be that way? Maybe I should be upset with their parents instead. Maybe I should be upset with their grandparents. Maybe I should be upset with the economic system that caused them to grow up in a place where the economics make uh, living comfortably very hard. Maybe I should get rid of, be, be upset with politicians who make the economics that leave a tremendous differential between the people who get along easily and the people who don't. I'd have to end up mad at everybody because everybody is at fault. And if I think that nobody did it, everybody did it, and everybody could solve it together, because there's no end to who's responsible. We're all responsible. I think that people like His Holiness and 
those other people that we mentioned. We, re we ad admire them, among other things, for their ability to forgive. Nelson Mandela was not mad at his jailers, and they were respectful of him. Everybody was stuck in a position where they were stuck there until they weren't. And we retell the story. All kinds of heroic stories about ordinary people in Auschwitz or Birkenau who get asked about, weren't you furious with your guards? They, who gave all kinds of answers, starting from, I felt compassion for them having to do it, to, I had enough trouble without being angry at them. That would have added to my trouble. A friend of mine uh, had her entire life savings invested with Bernie Madoff. And she called and said, uh, this has just happened. I had, I had heard about it, and then she called a week later and uh, said, you know, by the way, I had all of my money, a whole lifetime of work, and now I'm alone. I, I'm going to make it the rest of my life. That's, I can't start working and saving up again. She's a kind of a person who's not, who doesn't have a pension, who's an artist. So I said, we, we talked about her experience. I said, how do you feel when you got that telephone call and you heard about it? She said, well, I was, I, first of all, I couldn't believe it. It wouldn't go in my mind. And then as it went in my mind, I was terrified. How am I going to have the rest of my life? How am I going to take care of myself and my partner? How am I going to do it? And then she said, uh, or I asked her, were you angry at that moment? She said, I, I never got angry, she said, because I knew immediately that I had enough trouble without adding to it with anger. So I'm happy to tell you that she's a very long-time practitioner. I had enough trouble without adding anger to it. It's very painful to be angry. And when we're angry, our vision is limited. I read uh, the second book of Gregory Boyle recently. Do you recognize the name of Gregory Boyle? Gregory Boyle wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called Tattoos on the Heart. Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest in Southern California whose ministry is, um, what's it called, Good Homeboy, Homeboy Industries and Homegirl Industries. Uh, which has come out of the followers that he has made, friends he's made, pe young people mostly that he's ministered to in their barrio, where at the time that he started, there was a tremendous incidence of gang violence, lots of m killing people. And uh, in his book, he tells how many people he's, he's presided at their funerals how many families he's visited when somebody was shot because they were wearing the wrong color jacket that identified them as being the member of this gang or that gang. People who have fallen into various addictions and made poor choices. 
And the reason that Tattoos on the Heart became a tremendous bestseller, and I loved it when I read it, is that I think, as I read it, how many people have read that book? As I read it, what moved me is that he loved his people. He just really loved them. And he doesn't say, I just really loved them. He said, they came in, so-and-so came in, and he sat down and he said, listen, I have to tell you, I haven't done so well. I did this with my woman, and I did this with this, and this with that, and that with that. I don't know what to do now. My, my, I violated my parole. And as he's telling the story of one after another of his meeting with people, you have the feeling from what he says to them as his return when they have told him, and it's a, it's a confession, they've told him what it is, and his response, the, the first one, is always one that shows that he has not stopped loving them for hearing it. That he actually loves them so well that in the middle of hearing some really dreadful circumstance that this person has either done or fallen into or something, that his ability to love the fact that this person is a human being and to have still in his, in his, in his, in his body, in his mind, in his understanding that this person is, alas, just like all of us, the subject of everything that ever happened to her or to him. And they couldn't be better. But they are fundamentally a human being. And his ability to do that is so uplifting. You know, when, when we have a wee baby, it, it can do anything to you. It can pee on your lap or do what they do, you know, and, 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 but we don't not love them because we love them and it's disagreeable that they make a mess or that they throw the food on the floor or that they have tantrums and throw the stuff on the floor in the, in the airport because the plane is delayed a lot. I, I love watching parents who are effective under those circumstances. That baby that's thrown herself or himself on the floor kicking and screaming, they're three years old, I think is acting out what everybody else in the airport feels at that point, but we actually know that it wouldn't work for us all to throw ourselves on the floor and kick and scream. And the parents who cannot, you know, jerk them up and you know, otherwise admonish them, but really know to soothe them at that point. Everybody needs to be soothed when they lose it. Out of naturally arising compassion, because you see the truth of the situation is this is a baby. And she doesn't feel good. He doesn't feel good. So I'll take care of it. Gregory Boyle sees the, the, the baby who's beside herself in the 30-year-old man who's just violated his parole, in the this who's just done that. That, it, that this is a, 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 a being that is, for, it just is the result of all of the karma that it's met so far in its life. And all he feels for them is tenderness. Oh, I'm glad I said that word because the other day I read a, 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 a book of poetry that someone has recently written about their experience of this practice over time. And it's called Tender Thoughts. And I thought that's such a nice word. We don't use the word tender very much. But I think we, we say we, we're going to try to sweeten our hearts. But I think tenderness is a very nice word when you look in the hospital rooms all down the corridor as you're going to visit your person, everybody around the people in all the rooms 
is ministering to them with tenderness. When John tells the story of him sitting with someone and holding their hand in the last moments of their life, you don't know that person at all. But you feel tender to whoever they are. And tender to John, I'm sure, in that, that he's sitting there with them. That acts of kindness for people who look around the circumstances, who see here is a being, I don't even know them and they can't even talk, but they're in one of those really vulnerable moments in life. And I am called upon to treat this with tenderness. And it's equally for my benefit as for them. It soothes our own heart that in this difficult, difficult life and world, tenderness exists, especially when we feel it in ourselves. We are our own. Be a lamp unto yourself, which Kanda just said in the last hour. We keep ourselves alive. By the way, Greg Boyle's new book is called Barking to the Choir. And uh, he said he was talking to one of the young men that he counsels. And uh, he gives him some advice or something. And the young man says, oh, Father Boyle, you're just barking to the choir. And he, Greg Boyle, in his book is saying, here's this young man who has enough uh, experience with English language to know two, two phrases, preaching to the choir and barking up the wrong tree. And he's put them together as barking to the choir. And he said, in that minute, this boy said that to him. And he said, and he said I thought, title for next book. <laughs> Everything is always active, including one's own ego and one's own hope to do something There are two more things that I just want to mention in the forgiveness. We are just... Forgiveness is the price we have to pay for freedom. How do I want to say this? Um, I read two very touching things in this last week. One was an essay uh, I think in the New York Times, maybe on Mother Jones, actually, on how hard it is for a human being to change their mind, especially if they are filled with a certain ideation that's fueling their behavior. They look at extreme hate groups, which are now proliferating. It's very frightening. It's a story of people in extreme hate groups who every once in a while they tell the story of three people who realize there's something off for me, this isn't working. I, I'm happy in this community and I'm excited when I'm with my people and when we do whatever we do, a demonstration, I feel at home and alive and otherwise my life isn't working. But this isn't good. How hard it is to get out from there with a parole officer, with a counselor, with this, with that, with Greg Boyle, that the lure of being with a group that's, that carries a passion with them. 
is, is, is so overwhelming to their nervous system. It's like the point of the article was that hating is an addiction. And that we would think, when I have gotten very mad, when I got the letter from that particular person that said these things to me that hurt my feelings so badly. So I had to, I don't know if I hated him, but I was so furious that I actually was so uncomfortable. I remember praying that, the, that it would go away because it's such an uncomfortable feeling. So it's really a revelation for me to find that really aversion and strong aversion can also be for some people like an, um, like speed, like a, like a drug that picks them up and how hard it is to let it go and to actually change your mind. Not just stop doing it, but to have your mind change and have it really, this particular group, what I thought about them, that wasn't right. That it becomes a true thing, what we think about people. I think that, uh, you know, I, I hope I don't have that kind of violent, these people are like that and that people are like this and these people are like that. But I, like, I, I think about what if suddenly in some group of people like this, someone would say, you may not know it, but the people sitting all around you voted exactly differently from how you did in the last election. You think, whoa, all these people that I liked so much all week, they share all my needs. I mean, they have my same views. Ugh, who would have thought? I couldn't have relaxed if I would have known. How to have a mind that says, So I see that in my mind, I have things that I'm working on. Such and such people are good, those people are not good. I want to be able to think about my sense or my understanding is what those people are doing. What's, what people who do this are doing is not, is not really wholesome for everybody else. But I'd like to be able to hold it in the mind that doesn't say they are the others. I'd like to hold it in the mind that says, alas, we have a world or a community or a, a, a society that has cultivated that in people. And now the answer to it is not continuing hatred, but to say, well, like, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, but to make a society that doesn't from the beginning teach that. That we all together. And the last thing I want to tell you about is um, an article that I just read about um, the hospice that's in uh, either San Quentin or uh, maybe Vacaville, places where, that are um, penitentiaries for people who have done really, really terrible things and who will, not, who will be incarcerated for the rest of their life and who for even young uh, start to die of a disease, but old who have been incarcerated for 20 or 30 or 50 years and now are dying. The people taking care of them in the hospice, they have a hospice. The people, when they, when they have not so much time to live, are invited to live in the hospital, brought to the hospice. And the hospice workers are, wor are other people who are incarcerated and who did terrible things. And when you read the story of 
the genuine kindness that one of them can show to another one that they know has done terrible things. It, it, first of all, it's touching that at least, not, not to, this is not a, anything about the whole penal system that I have other thoughts about, but at least people can die with dignity. And the dignity that it gives to the people who are helping them do it so touched me because it's the article starts by early on a cold morning, so-and-so, so-and-so, gets up out of his bed and apparently has a, a license to go out from his room, probably in the same building or the same cell block, and uh, hurries down the hall to enter into his shift with being in the hospice. And how uh, soothing it is to these people to spend their time taking care and ministering to these other people and talking about things like when they, when they arrive, they get a, a, a package. It's got something like a robe in it and fuzzy slippers or something to comfort them. And it's got these people to comfort them. And one of the, one of the inmates gives haircuts to the people who are patients in the hospital or hospice workers there. But they're all people who have done terrible, terrible things in their life where the terrible, terrible things don't matter at that point. There's a kind of an understanding that things happen because of circumstances and they can all be kind. They can be the recipients of kindness. And when I read it, I was so moved by it. I don't know what else to do with that, but that somehow the, the people who, it, that's a coveted job, hospice workers. It's also so, um, I don't know, maybe it, 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 it rises in me, it provokes in me the feeling that any sense that I may have had, that some people just didn't learn kindness, they don't have kindness, they don't understand kindness, maybe fundamentally, underneath it all, everybody can when they're treated with dignity. And I like to think that the people who are working there are ennobled. They'll stay there forever, but maybe they'll change. They are changed in their minds in how they hold themselves. Sometimes when I, um, sometimes when I do something that I'm not proud of, I speak unthoughtfully or I say something that I wish I hadn't said to a group or to my, my husband or to somebody anywhere, especially to a group you know, where everybody hears me. And then I'm speaking on, I think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't such a good thing to say. And then I'm teaching on, and I've got things that I want to talk about. But here comes that thing. You did it wrong. You said a wrong thing. You shouldn't have said that. That wasn't so thoughtful. That, and I realize also that, it's, uh, that the presence of that thought is not good for me because I'm trying to think clearly. And, and I think to myself at that point, it was really very effective to think to myself, sweetheart, you did the, rest, the best you could. You're always doing the best you can. Even when you don't do well, you're doing the best you can. 
It was a mistake. You won't do it again. Let it go. Everybody makes mistakes. Besides, I don't think, I, I like to think often that it's not me teaching. That, um, that when I teach particularly well, there are days I feel good, my body is good, uh, my memory is good, and maybe I say, oh, I'm pleased with what I do. So it's a kind of uh, enjoyment of something good happening. So I thought to myself, well, maybe this is no good, this is pride. I said, no, it's not actually pride. It's because I know that the reason that what I'm teaching came out good is because my whole committee showed up that day. <laughs> that all my parents and my teachers and my Dharma teachers and everybody I've met and my body, my body is also on the committee, it all showed up today so that the best possible thing came out. And when I teach in a way that I think, ah, I could have done this better, that better, that better, that better. I think, well, I couldn't have. I couldn't be better. Today, the, the committee didn't all show up. That's all. So I can't be too proud of it, and I can't be too distressed about it. And it's actually a great relief. It's just the committee teaching. So... So now it's time to go and have dinner. But forgiveness is a, an iteration of understanding. Things are the way they are because they couldn't be other than the way they are and nobody can be other than the way they are. Now, everyone can change and things can change. Okay. Well, wait, John wants to say something. Just a uh, reminder to maintain the silence and really honor this precious time of practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.